because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. We've always believed we weren't alone. On July 4, we'll wish we were. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Cows in the Field. This is a movie podcast. Uh, My name is Justin. I'm Laura. And today we are talking about the highest grossing film of 1996, Independence Day, starring Wilfred Smith, (laughs) Billy Pullman, and Jeffrey Goldblum. Oh, and also Randy Quaid, if you want to throw him in the mix. Yeah, I do want to throw him in the mix. Yeah. So There's also are, some women in this movie. Yeah, there are also women in this movie. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's a point we're going to come back to. Who else knows about this? SETI in New Mexico identified a signal. Now, we estimate that it has a diameter of over 550 kilometers and a mass roughly one-fourth the size of our moon. What the hell is it? A meteor? No, sir. No, definitely not. How do you know? Well, sir, it's slowing down. It's what? Quick. Let's just get there as quickly as What's possible. What's the rush, huh? Think we'll get to Washington and we'll be there? It is confirmed. The unexplained phenomenon is headed for Moscow. It's like a chess. First, they're positioning their pieces using this one signal to synchronize their efforts. And then what? Checkmate. Oh my God. I really don't think they flew 90 billion light years to start a fight. Uh, okay, so this movie is 1996. This is kicking off the 1996 series. We're starting with a, you know, we're starting so off with a bang, with, with an explosion, with yeah, nu- with the destruction, with nuke. destruction of the Earth, <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> with the highest-grossing movie of this year. We didn't really plan it that way, but let's just kick it off big. Well, we did plan it that way. I mean, it it is on the schedule as the first one of the series. Okay, so in a way, we did plan it, but we could also say we didn't plan it. I, I mean, it the Planning is it's context sensitive. It's context sensitive. <laughs> uh, what's going on in 1996 when this movie comes out? Well, of course, this movie comes out in Ju- right around Fourth of July, 1996, and I saw it in theaters, probably very close to when it came out. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a sensation. I mean, I was uh, whatever. I was in middle school, and I remember everyone wanted to see it, and I went with some friends, and some parent took us, and I was scared out of my mind. Yeah. Uh, especially when the, the, the alien dissection scene, terrifying. Yep. Um, interestingly, blowing up all the landmarks, not scary. I was like, that's fine. <laughs> I think that's, it's abstract. Yeah. Uh, we'll get into maybe what the difference is there. But this movie opens to number one, as you would expect. It's the number one movie of the year. In many respects, it's the <laughs> glory days of, I think, American cinema, you know, American blockbusters, blockbuster like cinema. popcorn movies. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. I think, you know, uh, kicked off by movies like Independence Day. Um, and uh, so apparently um, Spielberg told Emmerich, just just Roland Emmerich, the director of the film, uh, just to give you a sense of like how important people thought this movie was. Uh, so Spielberg said to, to Roland Emmerich, uh, this movie will do more to change the blockbuster uh, than any movie before. So it's a very, he thought that of this as like kind of a shot of adrenaline in the heart of the summer blockbuster. Um, 
And in a way, he was right, because after this, you get a bunch of 1990s disaster movies like Volcano. These are all natural disaster movies. Um, uh, Volcano, Dante's Peak, Armageddon, Deep Impact. Um, And to a certain extent, it presages the the sort of superhero movies, which have a lot of destruction of physical objects in them, too. So Emmerich said, uh, he, he said, looking back, you know, 20 years on, I see the influence of Independence Day everywhere in all the Marvel movies, superheroes of DC Universe. There's always an alien invasion, a disaster element. You totally see that in like, you know, especially I'm just coming to mind right now is like uh, the Infinity War stuff. Absolutely. There's like a lot of destruction um, of various landmarks. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Well, I mean, I wonder, I guess on some level, like if it's going to be a blockbuster, most blockbusters are kind of different iterations of disaster movies, right? Like something really big and spectacularly bad has to happen and then the hero has to save the day. Yeah. But but there was this particular flavor of like natural disaster movies that were happening around the late 1990s, it yeah. seems. And then like Emmerich himself sort of became known for this. Uh, for the master disaster. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he kind of went on to try to top himself again and again with these disaster movies. Um, and I think in a way was, you know, he's overall, he's a pretty schlocky director in the sense that he makes movies that are more about the spectacle of the destruction than than anything else. But as a theme we're going to get into with Emmerich is that he seems deeply concerned about man-made climate change, and that's baked into pretty much all of his disaster movies, uh, including this one, um, a, a sort of, it's, you know, it doesn't play a significant role in this movie, but it is there. It's, totally. It's a sort of, you know, in Jeff Goldblum's character throughout, and it kind of echoes throughout the movie. Um, uh, you know, I guess I was sort of, we were trying to think about like, you know, what what caused culturally the the shift to to sort of open the floodgates for disaster movies in the U.S. Like, why do people all of a sudden start making them and craving them? And that, you know, these were incredibly high grossing movies. Um, I mean, a very simple answer is before this. Uh, the special effects just maybe weren't good enough to do this realistically. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it really was a lot of, you could do a lot of practical stuff with models, but it just wasn't, I don't know, you couldn't get the sort of scale and have all the people in there at the same time. And um, so maybe, I mean, especially the the alien dog fights and, and things. Of course, the counterpoint to that is that the, the, the dog fight scenes are basically ripoffs sort of poor clones in a way of star wars and yes the dog yeah. in star wars there's a lot of star wars in this movie yeah and then and and in a way i was thinking of other mod like destruction city destruction kind of things with that are done with models and uh terminator 2 has one that that's actually like one of the most upsetting sequences put to film um which is where the nuclear holocaust in oh yeah that's dream. really really scary and i and that's of course done completely practically with models like i don't think there's any cgi i mean there may be some cgi touch up here and there but again but that movie i guess is only a few years before this so maybe we're at that point right where the you 90s can do is a turning point technolo- technologically yeah. that but in the impulse is to like make things on a bigger scale Right. If like the blocks, the like the blockbuster 
formula. It was like Jaws before, like, you know, a small town and a, and a shark. Like yeah. now that you have the technology, you got to go like big. It's got to be like the fate of the world or, you know, whole cities have to be leveled because we have the ability to do that. Is yeah. that what you're thinking? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, or or it was, I mean, I guess there are two parts of it. Uh, one is that we always wanted to see the destroy. Like we always wanted to see our greatest <laughs> achievements be destroyed. Mm. And we just couldn't do it until the That's until twisted. the technology came about. Or or B, it's just that, you know, there's this one-upmanship that happens with blockbusters that, that where we're like, okay, well, we've seen the shark and we've seen, I don't know, we've seen the like destroyed Statue of Liberty and Planet of the Apes. That's another sort of shout out this movie does. Um, and we've seen, I don't know, what other sort of, blockbustery destruction things we've seen the ship in poseidon adventure that's sort of sinking in the scale of the ship and that kind of thing and so now you know we just need to keep it needs to get bigger and grander else audiences aren't going to keep coming back they're like well i've already seen a ship sink i need to i need to see a, a giant ship sink or i need to see <laughs> it's a, called titanic a total, the yeah, after. <laughs> a total city just destroyed by aliens so i think yeah that kind of um I don't know. I think that uh, that that's a, po a possible explanation. I, I don't know. Um, it is interesting. I was looking up just like lists of, you know, um, best disaster movies. And Cinema Blend, I think, had like one that was like 15 long and five of them were from like 1995 to 1998. Yeah. It was crazy. And then a lot of them and then there were some sprinkled throughout the 70s and 80s. But like it was like a lot in the 50s. Yeah. A lot of like the day the earth stood still kind of like a lot of alien invasion movies in the 50s mm -hmm. um, or like maybe like the things that had to do with sort of like nuclear holocaust, which that makes total sense why that was happening in the 50s mm -hmm. um, and the like cultural anxieties that were happening around the space race and Cold War. But I couldn't quite put my finger on like what kind of anxieties were simmering in the late nineties to have that, um, you know, and and it and for in particular like most of the flavors being natural disasters. This is an alien movie, um, of course. Um, I think they included Titanic on that list. Mm. That's a historical drama. Yeah. But you know, between Twister and Armageddon and Deep Impact, um, there's a lot of and the and the uh, volcano movies too, Dante's Peak, and there's a lot of natural disaster movies that are happening in the late '90s, which is curious. Yeah, so maybe one explanation of 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 that is that um, uh, you you have to almost manufacture the anxiety um, because there is no cultural anxiety, <laughs> and and what what would be the anxiety of a culture that has sort of in a way reached its apex in terms of the middle class is thriving. There's not really any significant wars happening. There's no significant threat to U.S. cultural and military dominance because the Cold War is over and we won the Cold War. Uh, so, um, you know, and economically things are are going well. There's broad, you know, um, harmony among the many countries. Um, so you might think, well, when things are going well, the, the anxiety is that, well, what if they didn't go well? <laughs> what if like oh, what we have to worry about is now something coming and disrupting this mm -hmm. natural or like state. we've created a world that's like so dope that like aliens want to come and take it over. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, but that wouldn't explain the uh, the. No, uh, no, you're right. The, right. Sorry, the, my mind just went back to independent. It would not explain why we're worried about Twister. Yeah, or yeah. or the the asteroids that are coming. Right. <laughs> I, I just think I do wonder. It's a little bit like you know we've created a house of cards, and like what do you worry about when you have a house of cards? You worry about a gust of wind because mm. it'll blow it over. So I, I, I wonder whether that's, that's well put. I uh, like that. Yeah, I just wonder whether that's kind of what it is. Is mm. that you know we're like. There's no other threat, but like just yeah, the, the threats acts are all, of God and the earth itself. Exactly. Like their yeah. threats are all external to, to, to us because we've sort of reached this like, I mean, people were writing books like titled The End of History and stuff. People thought like the 90s, like, we, you know, it was kind of like all like, you know, now all <laughs> we have like to, nailed it. <laughs> now all we have to do is just like sit back and like reap the the benefits of all the harmony that we've sown. Like we've we, all the major conflicts are over. Yeah. This movie like literally solves world peace because the Palestinians and Israelis like get themselves a oh, thumb yeah. up, thumbs up to each other. Yeah. I mean, let's get into that. So, I mean, it's crazy. Here's a question that I mean, this movie like a presupposition of this movie is that if aliens came down and threatened human civilization, we would bow, we would bind together and we would be like, you know what? Uh, we are one human race and we need to fight as one. We need to unify and repel the invaders. Okay. Now, you might think in 1996, that's pretty plausible because, hey, we don't have any sort of dissident ideologies like communism floating around. We've already, we've already shown, the history has shown that to be a, a folly capitalism won out sort of democracy won out and yeah there are these like patches of insurrection and and unrest here and there but for the most part the society is like chill so if aliens showed up what would happen well people would all be like well the u.s you are the best you solved all the world's problems they would all look to, to the u.s yeah They'd be like okay what do we do and we'll just follow your lead and what I think the coronavirus has shown is that, okay, one, we have a global threat to all mankind, right? All humankind is, is equally threatened by the coronavirus. We, you know, no one is immune to this thing. What has happened? There's been no binding to get nobody, nobody's like, let's get together as a human race and beat this thing. No, it's all just like, let's factionalize and be like, screw you, I'm hoarding my toilet paper, right? <laughs> and, I, and I think, you know, so in watching this movie from the perspective of 2020, and looking back, you think, Phalian showed up. It's We'd pretty unlikely so that yeah. we would join together. But I like think, one guy would have like a lot of toilet paper before he got incinerated. Yeah, I mean, this is what, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just kindling at that point. So good luck, man. No, I mean, he... He's ready to go, though. He could, yeah, <laughs> he could wipe up a lot of messes with that. Uh, but I was thinking that, um, you know, when we were watching the movie and we were like, um, you know, and, and, and the sort of world waits for the U.S. to like launch their nukes. And they're all kind of just like, nobody's m making a move. They're just like, mm, let's see what the U.S. does. And then the U.S. decides to launch their nukes and it doesn't work. I was like, no, that would not happen, right? No. As, it's 100% clear. Like every, every country that has nukes Right, they're all there are these ships above every sit major city. So Moscow, right? They would have launched nukes immediately, right? They're gonna nuke the crap out of them. They don't <laughs> care about nuclear fallout for that's gonna hit like Belarus or like you know get as far as Germany or or whatever. They're like, nope. I I think this just is showing like the factionalization. Just yeah. that's gonna come out much more strongly than this movie 
idealistically thinks it's such would not a happen. it's such an optimistic movie. Well, it's optimistic in certain respects. We'll and get jingoistic. To that. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, from a non-American director. <laughs> okay, I mean, we can get into that now if you want. I mean, sure. I I do think that this movie it is I think a neoconservative dream in the sense that now we're in a situation where the U.S. is basically kind of ruling the world in a way, hegemonically, so much so that the Brits are sitting with the Israelis and the Palestinians and they're like, get a message from whatever. They get it right. They get a message over Morse code. Like the U.S. is planning a counterattack and the guy's like, oh, blood, but bloody damn time. Right. They're like, we're just like sitting on their hands, just waiting for the U.S. Yeah. to do something. And then, of course, they all unify, right? The Like, the Israelis are unified with the Palestinians. So they all kind of unite under the American flag. And that, that comes with that, like, big speech given by uh, Bill Pullman, where he's like, today, it you know, July 4th is not just an American holiday. It's a world holiday. Like, this is exactly what the neoconservative, you know, group of people like Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld and Bush 1 and Bush 2 and all these guys wanted they they deeply wanted like the u.s will like seed its ideology everywhere in the middle east and everywhere and then democracy will flourish in less than an hour aircraft from here will join others from around the world and you will be launching the largest aerial battle in the history of mankind mankind that word should have new meaning for all of us today we can't be consumed by our petty differences anymore. We will be united in our common interest. Perhaps it's fate that today is the 4th of July, and you will once again be fighting for our freedom. Not from tyranny, oppression, or persecution, but from annihilation. We're fighting for our right to live to exist and should we win the day the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday but as the day when the world declared in one voice we will not go quietly into the night we will not vanish without a fight we're going to live on we're going to survive today we celebrate our Independence Day! And I do think that, like, it's interesting that Emmerich, as you pointed out, is, is German. And he grew up in Germany in the 70s and 80s. And but I, I can imagine that Emmerich experienced firsthand a divided Germany. He had like right before his eyes the contrast between the the sort of success and flourishing of the West and the crappy economic conditions of East Germany. Um, I'm sure all Germans at that time knew. Mm -hmm. And I do wonder if that influenced him. So that the thought being that, like, yeah, like there's a reason why, you know, even if we're imposing democracy and capitalism on these countries which wouldn't otherwise embrace it, we have to do that. For their own good, because otherwise it's going to end up like East Germany, which is like a shithole. <laughs> and so, um, you know, or whatever, like communism is is bad times. Uh, you, like, a, a, you know, planned economy is bad. And so 
I wonder if that experience uh, informs his political, you know, ideology that's baked into this movie, which is very much a, you know, hegemonic behavior of the U.S. Like Mm -hmm. the U.S. is never like consulting with other world leaders to decide what to do. They're just like making decisions unilaterally. And then those other people are following suit. Um, And so I do wonder if Emmerich, you know, having now I I imagine he lives in the States now and everything is, has done so for some time. Uh, you know, he's kind of one of these expats that like has really embraced the US. Yeah. Um, so it seems it seems that way from Independence Day. Yeah. Did you I feel like you disagreed with me when I made an offhand comment about it um the other day, but do you feel like this movie's a really hawkish movie? Um um well, I mean, I don't know. It depends, I guess. I, I uh, what did you mean by Hawkeye? I, I can't. Well, I can't remember the set, the context. Sure. In which yeah. We well, have. I just because I think Bill Pullman's um, Bill Pullman's arc is that like he, as president, apparently has been criticized his entire presidency, however long it's been, because like he's like a wimp. They say, like they they thought he's a he was a fighter pilot in his past and. Um, and then like they have some TV commentator being like, well, we thought we got a hawk, but instead we got a wimp Mm -hmm. or we got a dove or like, you know, this guy like, you know, wants to talk it out. (laughs) And that seems to be like the narrative about him and like his glory moment, his arc is that he like gets back in the, in the ship, like he gets back in his plane to like shoot some stuff. And like he, he gets to make his big speech about like, we're going to go like shoot some damn aliens. It does like feel like his like what did he learn is that he like needs to like resolve conflict with violence and not you know by like right. measured thought right which is what he'd been criticized for right and i guess you're right that the, the course of the movie is really pullman again and again resisting the urges of his military advisors right. and cia guy to be like let's just nuke these guys right now and he's like no 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 no. let's try to negotiate and stuff and it's not until the alien like gets in his head and sort of he sees he sees the like all they want is for them to die that he's like, okay, let's new it's at that point. Right. When he's like, we got to nuke him. Right. And so in a way it's, it's, it, if you think of Pullman as an audience surrogate as like, okay, like here's how you're sort of supposed to feel. You're supposed to think aliens are here. This is really cool. Like let, maybe we could learn something from them. They're not, they don't seem to be coming in peace. Hmm. Okay. Uh, well, they did destroy our cities. Uh, okay. We'll still, we're, we're not going to reuse our big weapon. We're going to, you know, use the tactical attack. And then it's only after like the tactical attack doesn't do anything. And you realize there's really no hope they use the big weapon. And then you sort of come to the conclusion that, well, maybe you just nuke these guys from the beginning. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I was wondering if you felt like that movie had that had that overall message. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. Um, I mean, I I think it's also interesting that um, part of the reason I think it's a bit of a neocon dream is that the neocons really, I think, think of the world as enemy and ally. There's no, like, room to, like, negotiate. There's not really room for negotiation. Like, they really see it like you're either our... I mean, the Bush said this, right? You're, you're either with us or against us, right? Mm-hmm. And th- that's the kind of ideology they they through lens, ideological lens through which they see the world, and so to them having a, a, an alien force show up is like the perfect. It's like the er example of that. It's like we should never not trust these things at all. We should just blow them up. 
They're not even human. We have no, <laughs> right? They kind of want us to always think about our enemy not as human. So that's easier for us to think about them, to kill them, right? Well, here you have a perfect example. Like these things are not human. They're not deserving of our, you know, love or respect or admiration. Let's just, they're here. They seem to be mean. Let's kill them. And um, <laughs> they are kind of mean though. <laughs> well, they, I mean, no, but that's what I mean. Is It's like, it's like they, this is, it's almost as if they're behaving by, like in a script that was right. written by a neoconservative, yes. right? They're like aliens show up, they do what aliens do, which is blow stuff up. And then we do what we do, which is kill them, right? right? There's no room for, there's no like black, it's all black and white. There's no gray area where like the aliens are like, hey, do you want to negotiate? And we kind of like, you know, misconstrue that. And then it gets out of hand. And then we're like, oh man, if only we had been a little bit more subtle in our diplomacy, <laughs> Right. It's like, like, no, no, no. The aliens just show up and just start killing things. (laughs) We need to kill them. They're they're literally others to be destroyed. Right. Because they're not allies. So they're others to be destroyed. There's no like middle ground. Yeah. Okay. Another thing that you mentioned, I think, when we're watching the movie that is kind of ridiculous is that like the president of the United States um, uh, has lost his wife. She dies, you know, sustaining injuries. He's the only parent now to the oh. to the daughter. Yeah. And he is the president of the United States. And yet he sees fit to enter a fighter plane and like participate in the like dog fight with the aliens. Like that also if it seems like for a million reasons this so he should reasons. not be allowed to enter that yeah, plane. Also, didn't all the joint seat staff like everybody else is dead, right? Like all yeah, the other leadership like, in the US. Well, so I, don't know. Like I thought they were them. like in the bunker and they died. Like, oh, that's I think the right. joint staff all died. Oh. So uh literally everybody's dead. You're gonna like leave the government, like leave US without a government if you die. Also, you're gonna leave your daughter orphaned. But you know what? It's cool. And like, that's how you define <laughs> yourself as a man and a leader is you get in the ship and you you blow some stuff up, man. Oh, man. It's crazy. And I think they were even like they had like because they have a kind of a constant news going on in the background. Yes, yes. And at some point he decides, I think his first sort of like moment of of, uh, of bravery and manlyhood and leadership is when he decides to not get in the bunker because they're like, all right, Mr. President, we've got to we've got to protect you like, right. into the bunker you go. And he's like, no, 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 I'm standing. I'm staying here. Mm-hmm. And then at some point you hear like um, the news commentator be like, was this the smartest? Was this like the dumbest thing or the bravest? Thing? <laughs> like, I think they were all like, yeah, <laughs> like our president is finally like being awesome and American because yeah. he's deciding to put himself in bodily physical harm for no good reason. Yeah. <laughs> Cause that's what, that's what leaders do. Well, I, I mean, I, his stated reason was not just the bravery thing, but he's like, I don't want to start a panic, but it's also like, we expect when aliens show up that the president is going into a bunker. It's not going to really make us any more panicked than that there are aliens here. Yeah. You know, it's like he's like, well, I don't want to start a panic or anything. So well, I'm just going to sit right here while the alien <laughs> ship sends over my desk. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but that, you know, that's one way of thinking about it. <laughs> um, I love Bill Pullman, though. I should say that. Like, I think his character arc is completely absurd, but I. Uh, forgive it all because I you, love Bill Pullman. Let's not get into this. Do you have a favorite of the big three in this movie? Uh, Will Smith, Bill Pullman, Jeff Goldblum? Because I feel like those three, you like all three of them. I love all three of them. Yeah, I do. I think it's for Goldblum for me, though. Um, His particular brand of like nerdy and smarmy is, is special. You're talking about line of sight. 
Yeah, that's right, exactly. The curve of the Earth prevents it. You'd need satellites to relay that signal in order to reach each ship. Well, I found a signal hidden inside our own satellite system. Excuse me, Mr. Preston. They're starting. They're using our own satellites against us. And the clock is ticking. I do think that um, that Will Smith, in a way, sort of just, I mean, kind of dominates the movie with his Oh, charisma. he owns you this know, movie. And, and Absolutely, I, and, to be clear. And I was sort of thinking, like, like um, whether there is or even could be a better uh, movie star vehicle than, than this movie for Will Smith. And partly because I think... Um, the character that he plays, wait, I don't even know the character's name. It doesn't even matter. It's, it's like Steve something. Steve. Yeah, that seems but, right. But who cares? It doesn't even it doesn't matter. matter. It was Will Smith. At each, I'm going to refer to all of them by their actor names. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think I think everyone does. Nobody knows the character's names. It's not like Harry Potter. And then you're like, who played Harry Potter? <laughs> Daniel Radcliffe. Okay, got it. You're like <laughs> Harry Potter. But with this movie, you're not like, uh, oh yeah, it's Steve Smith. And then you're like, who played? Oh yeah, Will Smith played him. It's the exact opposite. And I, I think that, so Will Smith and uh, and and Bill Pullman and Jeff Goldblum's characters, who even knows their names? I think on the page, these characters are basically uh, ciphers in a way. I think they're like empty vessels. They're just like, um, I don't know. They're just like bundles of lines that further the plot. So, so basically you could, you could chart each character by their plot arc, not by any personal characteristics of them. So you could be like Will Smith, he's a fighter pilot. He's going to, um, eventually end up piloting the ship that goes and drops off the virus. Jeff Goldblum. He's kind of nerdy. He figures out the, the code uh, he is going to, he also figures out the virus thing. Bill Pullman, he's the president. He's going to have to make some choices about nukes. He's going to be a fighter pilot. Like that's kind of the characters on the page in, mm-hmm. in a certain, I mean, there's other subplots that are sort of. Involving throw, ladies. Yeah. Involving women thrown in there that <laughs> we'll get into, but the gist of like the main arc, like that's it. But then what I think is so interesting is that so, so the, on the page, I think the characters are like basically nothing. But then you might think that's bad, but it's actually, I think, a really good thing for a movie star because now the movie star can just sort of fill that void or that vessel with their own charisma. So they just sort of bring their own personality and style to that character and suddenly the character becomes part like it's like now watching Will Smith in this series of events like you just like when Will Smith wakes up in his introduction you're like oh that's Will Smith you don't think like oh he's playing some character you're like no that's just Will Smith that's just who he is here he is doing stuff being charming whatever he's just being Will Smith and it's like now I get to watch what Will Smith would do if he knew how to fly a plane an alien showed up he would punch that alien and say, welcome to Earth. Yeah, exactly. That's what he would do. Like all of those lines feel, <laughs> they're so organic that they've, and also bl- general, I guess, that they just sort of feel like, again, if it was written on the page, you think this is like, it's un- unbelievably cheesy. Like he's just got like six one-liners that he says back to back to back. Yes. Yeah. And, 
but then when you see Will Smith do it, you're just like, yeah, it's magic. This is cool. Yeah. He's so cool. <laughs> That's what you get. <laughs> Look at you. Ship all bang up. Who's the man? Huh? Who's the man? Wait till I get another plane. I'm lining all your friends up right beside you. Welcome to Earth. That's what I call a close encounter. You gotta come down here with an attitude. Hacking all big and bad. And what the hell is that smell? I could have been at a barbecue. But I ain't mad. It's all right. That is all right. I think that is why it works so well as a movie star vehicle is that like, it doesn't hem in the, these 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 actors at all. Like, in, and, and most importantly, Will Smith. It just allows him to be the most Will Smith. Um, and and in I and in a way, I think it's more of a movie star vehicle than than say Bad Boys because Bad Boys he's trying he's he's got to play a little bit more of a badass. And I think Will Smith is most comfortable when he's just being a PG thirteen Will Smith. Like mm-hmm. he's a fresh he's the Fresh Prince, you know, like. His brand of humor is broad and kid friendly. You know, you can you can be a a Christian mom and be into Will Smith. Yeah, because you know he's totally safe. Yes, totally. And that's why I think this movie like works so well. Is it? It doesn't ask Will Smith to do anything other than just be himself. And then you just get to see Will Smith, and that of course that's a selling point. And I think it's kind of the same for Pullman and and Goldblum in the in the sense. I mean, Pullman is the most, in a certain respect, written character that doesn't where I could see other actors be this. But Goldblum is just literally being Jeff Goldblum. As far as I can tell, like, he's just being Jeff Goldblum. Like, he could have just improvised almost all his lines. And I, if you told me that, I'd be like, that seems about right. Yeah, totally. Like, they're like, here's the basic arc. You can just go and, like, do your thing. And he's like, okay, I got it. I know. For all of my memories of Independence Day being Will Smith, he's actually not in all that much of it. I know. It takes almost 20 or 30 minutes to even get him on the screen, which is wild. Oh, I was going to mention one other thing about- And then he's kind of in the background. Like, when they get to Area 51, that's like true. there's one scene where they're just yeah. like, oh, that's the guy who brought in the alien. And yeah. he's like, what's up? Like, yeah. he's just in the background. That's a really good point. Yeah, no, I was I was actually thinking um, uh, back to when, when, when I, fr- I remember seeing the trailer- and I remember the trailer had, or one of the trailers had, uh, Will Smith when he was like walking out and picking up the newspaper and then looking at all the people. He's like, what are all these people doing? And they're all just kind of like looking into the distance. And then he looks over and it does this like Jaws, like Spielberg style zoom in on his, whatever, the dolly zoom in on his face. Mm-hmm. And um, and then he sees the giant alien ship over in it. And I remember thinking... That was like, you know, in a way, like the the kind of one of the big money shots. So you're, if you go to your, everyone in the theater saw that trailer and was like waiting for that moment because there's like, that's going to be so cool on the big screen, the big reveal of the alien ship and everything and Will Smith. And then when you get in there, it's, they withhold that from you for like 30 minutes. So Emmerich, there's just so much of just Judd, Judd and, uh, and Goldblum, uh, Goldblum like yeah. playing chess yeah. and like talking about his ex-wife. You're like, what is, what is this? Yeah. What is this? So where are my aliens? Where's Will Smith? Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> I, that's what I think is, you know, I think it's actually in a, in a way brilliant because it, you know, the audience, the, the demand, the, the pent up, like we want Will Smith killing aliens. 
like it's just so <laughs> it's it so us. much with it's so withheld from from you for so long that you when you when it finally is given to you you're just like right yeah when he's blowing up the alien or whatever right. and he's punching it and saying welcome to earth and whereas men in black starts with will smith like chasing down a perp like right. down guggenheim like you're already like fist bumping like you're already like uh you know like throwing your fists in the air being like yeah will smith like from like second negative one like yep. you're just <laughs> so um it, that one i think is like that perhaps is when he's like full octane i think that's movie right star. yeah i think that's right I, I i can imagine that this movie when they cast will smith it wasn't like oh this will be a will smith vehicle i right i imagine they were just like yeah here's here's th- it's like a, as you put it, it's like a really a three-hander there's three stars and they kind of give an equal screen time and um or there's... four-hander if you give to judd hirsch judd hirsch or i was gonna say r quaid <laughs> okay yeah, you like the R. Quaid stuff more than I do. Oh, I'm going to make Not my case. I'm making my case for Randy Quaid in this. That's coming up. <laughs> I think it's the weakest of the plot lines. <laughs> I'm going to make the case it's the best plot line. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, right? This, this, I think if this movie had come out four years later when Will Smith is like even bigger, I think they would have to either not have Will Smith or they'd have to be like, we need to write the movie around Will Smith, Mm -hmm. right? They need to give him more material because otherwise he's just too big a movie star. He's so much bigger of a movie star at that point than Goldblum and Pullman. And yet in this, he's, he's, I mean, it's clear when you watch it, you're like, that guy's obviously a movie star. And these two other guys are good actors, but they're not really movie stars in the same way. And, but, but, but it plays, you know, on the page and how much screen time they're given, like they're kind of the same. Why don't I, um, since we already kind of teased it, why don't I get into um, the fourth hander of the situation, which is Randy Quaid. <laughs> okay, you're going to have not, a Randy Quaid corner? <laughs> he's not. He's the Quaid brother that everyone either forgot about or <laughs> made fun of. But let's talk about Randy Quaid. So... If you think of the arcs of the characters in this movie, you have, or if you think of what the characters are dealing with, you've got Will Smith, pretty much not, I mean, he's he's concerned about, maybe he regrets not proposing to his girlfriend sooner. He's got these ambitions to go to the moon or whatever. He wants to be a, a space pilot, uh, an astronaut. <laughs> I call them space pilots. <laughs> That was really dismissive. You're like, he wants to go to the moon and be a space pilot <laughs> and eat space ice cream like a dummy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, okay. I mean, what, what you see with Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum are these sort of twin concerns about like family versus career, you know, f- career, yeah, like yeah, personal life and. And personal satisfaction of your relationships versus your career, right? Because because Will Smith is like sees it as a as a as a one or the other. Like you either marry this his wife or soon to be wife uh, Vivica Fox, who's a stripper, or you become a space pilot. Because there's no middle ground. Because if he becomes a space pilot, he's like a celebrity in a sense. And he can't be married to a stripper. That wouldn't be. He could that have would be like uncouth. a. He could have like a conversation with her about that, and she could maybe. <laughs> Do something else that's a great point that's a great point i was <laughs> thinking talk to her i was i, feel. I was i do agree that that's completely an, an absurd uh, dichotomy partly also because it doesn't you don't get the impression from her that she's like a career stripper that she's like i'm all about this yeah, yeah she's like i don't mind doing it it's good for my keeping my you know kid fed but i'm not like 
going to stripping conventions and like getting, you know, getting, you know, learning the newest tricks of the of the pole. Yeah, I think if he was like, hey, um, I might be on the spotlight here. Like, do you think that you could do this, you know, another job that doesn't involve, you know, uh, wearing yeah. as little clothing as you do? She'd probably be like, cool, cool. Or cool, would cool. you be interested in spending more time with your son? The, the sense I get is that she would. Yeah. And then he's like, great. I think that I'm NASA salary could handle, yeah, handle I'm it. I'm a space pilot. Now you can stay at home with your son and then go back to stripping later if you want. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you really wanted to. Okay. So that's the Will Smith. Arc. The, the, the Goldblum similarly, right? So Goldblum, it, we can get into this now if you want, but Ugh. Goldblum, you know, he's, he's basically like a non-ambitious kind of Gen X-y slacker guy who's supposed to be brilliant, but never really gave a shit about, you know, anything other, you know, he wants to save the planet and be a recycler and all that, but he's, he doesn't have like political aspirations or, you know, big, you know, he, he doesn't want to have monetary aspirations, that kind of thing. And his, his girlfriend or no, his wife, um, is, has political aspirations. And so she gets the call to go to the white house and she takes it. And that like breaks up their marriage. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because he's like, you chose White House over me. Yes. I had like some real, I mean, I love Jeff Goldman. I just said he's my favorite in this movie, but like, oh, this character is toxic. <laughs> At one point, because like you find out that he has pun punched the president, not when he was the president, mm -hmm. I guess, but he's punched the president because in his head, like the only reason that she would possibly want to go work for him was because she was having a sexual relationship with him. Yeah. Like, and at one point he was like, oh, you left me for your career, for him. Excuse me, your career. And when he said career, he had air quotes. Mm -hmm. It was rough. And I feel like, you know, the argument then becomes like, I want to be part of something greater. Don't you want to become part of something greater? And then that is his arc because he gets to like yeah. step up and save the world. Um, but like what's what they should be talking about yeah. is how he has like no respect or trust for her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not like it's not a question of whether or not he wants to buy into something greater or yeah. what his ambitions are. It's that like he assumes that like if she wants to like go to work because she's passionate about something, it's just really that she wants to fuck that guy. Exactly. Like she has no respect for his, for her, sorry, he has no respect for her passions or her career or yeah. her aspirations. Yeah. He's dismissive of all of that and that you would expect the arc then to be like he comes to realize that like her aspirations were good but no it just he comes to realize that he should have aspirations yes <laughs> yes which is a little funky yeah. so like when they hold hands when vivica a. fox and uh, and will smith get married and they're like reconnecting i was like you guys need to go to a lot a lot a lot of marriage therapy before you jump back into this one guys yeah not a fan good thing they don't have kids um but goldblum is so is so charming that he can like pull off he always has like an underlying smarminess i feel to him and like mm -hmm. a weird like sexual sexual mm -hmm. like scent he's throwing off at all times which i'm into but the misogynist parts of his character not as into yeah but, you know, perhaps just a moment in time in 1996. So I will say at this point, if you're keeping score, Will Smith's central conflict, kind of kind of thin. Oh, right. We're getting back to why Jeff, you love Randy oh, Quaid. We're getting there. Jeff, <laughs> Sorry, Goldblum, Jeff Goldblum's central conflict, kind of bogus. <laughs> We've already talked about how Bill Pullman's is also pretty bogus. Yeah, Joe, Bill Pullman's conflict is like... He's like, I'm like, going to go orphan my daughter now. Yeah, Bill Pullman's conflict <laughs> is like, 
these people on TV say I need to be more of a more of like a fighter like fighter pilot president, and so I'm going to do that. Yeah. At one point, he was like, "Things are so easy." When I was a fighter pilot, it was just black or white. You shoot the bad guys, and I'm like, and then he and then he just sort of simplifies it in his mind because it does become black and white for him. He's just like, yeah. "Oh, aliens, bad." John, okay. <laughs> let's not worry about so nuclear those are fallout. The three primary characters of this movie, right? To get the most screen time and and so on. And their conflicts pretty, I mean, besides obviously the alien stuff, but the conflicts in the internal to the characters are thin, to say the least. Randy Quaid, I think, has a genuine emotional conflict he's dealing with. So Randy Quaid's character, I don't even know his name. Russell, I think. Okay. He is, he was a pilot in Vietnam and uh, has, is clearly suffering from some kind of post-traumatic stress, either from Vietnam or from the fact that he was abducted by aliens, by the very aliens who have come back to the, to earth and was like that. Then they did experiments on him and like completely messed up him physically and mentally and now he's an alcoholic so he's got like deep trauma in his life that it's like led to post-traumatic stress at the same time he has a couple kids i guess with a mother who's not around do we know why no yeah so we don't know where his wife or girlfriend is the mother of his children is but he's a father to them he's raising them by himself he's struggling to you know, make ends meet, do what he can for them. And they see him as a, just as a complete, I don't know, wash up, like, like maniac, right? They, they don't believe him that he was abducted. Uh, he's, they just think of him as a drunk who, who they have to corral because he's always dusting the wrong crops or whatever. And they're, they're embarrassed by him, right? There's a lot, there are moments where the kids are like, they're, they're, the other people are making fun of Randy Quaid or, or whatever. They're just like, you dusted the wrong crop field. And then he's like, huh? And he, then they're just like rolling their eyes at him, you know? And he, this character is, you know, he's he's continually put down and made fun of throughout in all of his interactions with other people in the town they live and so on. And so he's just like, you know, humiliated again and again. And yet he is not defeated by that, right? He continues to fight for his kids, ultimately. He's fighting for his children to the very end, right? He's fighting, you know, for their lives um, and for their respect, I think. And in the end, he makes the choice to sacrifice himself uh, to save the world. And I think it's telling that it's him that gets to do that and not the president. Mm -hmm. um, that he, you know, that he's the one who gets to have that um, moment of catharsis. And the last thing he says over the intercom, at least, is, uh, you know, tell my kids I love them. Do me a favor. Tell my children I love them very much. All right, you alien assholes. In the words of my generation, up. What's he doing? Come on, baby. Come on, baby. Come on. Good luck, buddy. 
father did was very brave. You should be proud of him. I am. You know, I, I found that far quite moving, actually, and that, like, he has this kind of reconciliation from afar with his kids, and they realize, like, that everything that he said is true, that he's been just struggling with this de- these demons inside for so long, and he gets this, he gets to show them that he cares for them and that, you know, what he was fighting for all this time, he gets to sort of show it in one sort of final act of heroism. And in the end, he gets their respect. They right, they have that moment where with the exchange where the guy is like, you know, your father's a hero. And he's like, I know, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's just really moving. To me, I found that the most emotionally moving part of the movie is that there is that that kind of moment of I don't know, recognition between the father and the son. And I, I think it's it's a it's a universalizable idea, right? Like yeah. we don't know what our fathers have done to sacrifice for us, right? Many of our fathers that, you know, people that have served in wars or just the difficulty of their work that they go to do on a daily basis. And they come home and they tr- they they set that all aside and they're these kind of goofy, you know, kind of dorky, whatever. And maybe we don't have much respect for them because they're authoritarian or dorky or whatever. But then we when we see them make the sacrifice that they make for us, that's when that respect is, I think, solidified. And I, I just think it's, I don't know, it's very moving for me. Yeah. You sound so I thought that was a weird moment. I feel like he the part specifically where he the the son happens to like walk into the comms room or something like yeah. right when right when Randy Quaid is sacrificing himself. So he hear he like basically gets he to watch everything. his he yeah. gets to hear his father die. Yeah. And a dad say, you know, like dad say I tell my kids I love him, which is nice that he gets to hear that. Um and then you know the military guy was like, you should be proud. I just think it's like a weird hit non-reaction to just be like, yeah, I'm proud of him. Like he just lost his dad. And also, what are those kids gonna do? Now they gotta make ends meet all by themselves. And like he's the oldest one. He looks like he's like 17, maybe. Mm. I don't know. Like he's gonna, he's not gonna shed a tear or look a little panicked. He's just gonna be like, <laughs> I'm proud. Well, but but I think that what that shows is that that's the arc of this character. Yeah. The arc of this character is not to ensure that his children are, you know, economically safe. The arc is to gain their respect, mm-hmm. I think. So that's why I think that's how that is tied up. And and you're not supposed to be wondering those questions that you're asking. You're not supposed to be like, yeah, well, what happens next? Like, you guys are poor and you live in a motorhome. Like, you're pretty screwed. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I, I, my mind wasn't necessarily like, what are the next 10 years going to look like for them economically? But I was just like, I don't know that if my dad, even if I was so proud of my dad for something he, he really heroic he did, if he dies, I'm not sure that's my like my stoic response that I am, you know, I am in fact proud of him. Well, Walk away. No, but I, but I, uh, okay. I but I, I take, would cry. But there are two points on that. I don't think he's actually being totally stoic. I read the scene like he's deeply moved and he's not just like, yeah, I know. <laughs> like, what do you want? Of He's course. like playing his Game Boy. Yeah. But 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 the other thing is when I was saying I know, encoded in all that is not just the like, yeah, I just, you telling me you that. You told me I that. Like, now I, I He's came like, no, to that on my, like, I, I felt that as soon as yeah. I heard my, as like this whole time. When yes, my, as the soon whole as my time. dad now decided all, I'm going to go be a Now I get pilot. it. Everything yeah. 
everything that has happened up until now, I've I've seen it in a new light. Yeah. I've seen the sacrifices he's yeah. made in a new light. I I, I now I'm, I've I see my father in a completely different light. Not just like I see that he did one sacrificial thing. No, no, no. I see that everything he's done has been an attempt to, uh, you know, get his demons in control so that he can help us and so that and and i see that what he was struggling with this whole time and the challenges and burden that he was facing yeah. you know and how he was attempting to overcome that burden and and you know even with that burden that he was able to do these these things i think that's what is what he's saying when he's when he says i know and um and i do think there's or a third i am i think he says whatever i am, I am or whatever I, but i think the third thing that's present in there is is a, 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 a tinge of regret right a tinge of regret that he's not able to share that with his father because he knows his father has died not knowing whether his son has that level of respect for him, yeah. right? And I think that, so not being able to have shared that with him, I think is a regret that he seems to carry with him in that moment. So I hear, I see all three of those things. Okay, in that. you got anyway, a lot out of it. Yeah, that's my- Well, now I, you've convinced me. It's the best part of the movie. They should just make a movie about Randy Quaid and- uh the end. I mean, my my the hot take I have on this movie is that Randy Quaid is actually sneakily the best part of the movie. I feel like every time he's on the screen, he's the most sort of flawed and complex character. Yeah, I mean, there's no you're never concerned that Will Smith isn't going to like he's kick some ass and like yeah, right? I'm yeah. never worried even when the alien is on his tail, I'm like Will Smith's got it. Yes. You know, Randy Quaid is like a, he's like a deeply flawed character. Immediately, I'm like that character. I I'm rooting for mm -hmm. because he's struggling. You know, he's actually struggling. And Will Smith, like, do I should I propose to the stripper or not? I don't. You're not struggling. Like, I'm not, I just don't. <laughs> I, I, I don't identify with that conflict at in any way. Right, and same with no. the Jeff Goldblum. One. Well, like, it is also a fake conflict. No, that's what we, I mean. These are stated. not like real yeah. conflicts that like a human being could be like. Hmm, well, yeah, that's I. I could sort of see that being a real problem. <laughs> you know, you're like you like this girl. She's a stripper. You know, I was like, what? Like, come on. <laughs> anyway, uh, so that's why I feel like the Randy Quaid one. You know, maybe I'm reaching, but I'm also trying to find something in the movie that I feel is. Uh, has some sort of genuine emotional weight and is is at least interesting outside of like literally the destruction of um you know American cities because that's what the movie is mostly concerned about as far as I can see is like cities get blown up we got to fight back mm -hmm. like that's kind of what it it is and and anyway but I, so anyway that's why I'm drawn to to Randy Quaid that's my case for Quaid can I ask did I miss this did they make it explicit that he for sure factually was abducted by aliens and that it's these aliens. Um, or are we just supposed to say like, well, like well, we know that aliens exist and therefore like now his, his story has, you know, is most likely right. Let me give you the evidence true. that Not he's right. right. We, you're right that nobody is, is ever like, oh, I was there too. <laughs> Direct confirmation that he well, got abducted. No, I felt like for whatever reason, the entire trailer park has come with Will Smith to deliver this alien because yeah. I guess they all go together everywhere. So they're all hanging out at Area 51, which is convenient then because they need pilots and everybody else has died. Um, all their like actual military has died. So they're just like, who's a crop duster? <laughs> Um, and when he raises his hand, you know, he's like, I'm pilot. And then he's like, and may I say, ever since the aliens abducted me, 
And then they cut to the like the two, um, you know, commanders or military. They their eyes. Yeah, they yeah. do look like they're like, look at this guy, even though they definitely know aliens exist. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they definitely know aliens exist. Yeah. Like, if there's any moment to believe such a story, it's right this moment. And they're still like, look at this guy. No, I agree because, but <laughs> I, I, I think that's just dumb writing in the sense that they should have actually been like, wait, 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 what did the aliens do? Like, did they, did they <laughs> like, say we need to anything? You immediately. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> that's what you should be saying is like, oh wait, you were abducted by these aliens. Like, we need to find out what you know. Um, anyway, yeah. So in, <laughs> I guess you're right. No, but what we have, here's the evidence. Okay. It's all indirect. Okay. The evidence is Area 51. Yes. They've been here before. They've been here before. Because there's yeah. a ship that's crash landed. So we know aliens have been doing stuff. Evidence too. What Randy Quaid says is that they they did all these tests so they know the weaknesses. Mm. So they know the strengths and weaknesses. That would actually make sense if you're like gonna invade a planet. Right. You take some people, you figure out some stuff. Now you put them back. This totally makes sense. But anyway, maybe they did the maybe they like did the experiments on him on Earth and then they left or something. And then uh, the alien knows English. Right. So they right. know the language. Because, right. And the reason we know the alien knows English and knows how to manipulate the vocal cords of, of data in the creepiest scene of all time. Oh my God. When they, he's got the tentacle wrapped around his neck and he's manipulating you mean his- mean when this movie becomes a straight up horror movie? Yeah. And he's like making him speak as like a puppet. Uh. Um, they, you know, we know that they have studied humans enough to know their Yeah. Lang- Although the English, English language thing, like you might just think like in contact, like we've got plenty of stuff bounced around our satellites. They could get, get English. No problem. That's true. You know, but they TV. knows how to manipulate the vocal cords. But the cords. vocal cords. Yes. There's understanding. Their understanding of our human, human anatomy, anatomy for sure. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. I buy all that. Okay. We can learn from each other if we can negotiate a truce. We can find a way to coexist. Can there be a peace between us? When I was in the theaters, when I was like in sixth grade watching this or whatever, I, I was having a panic attack. I mean, I, was I didn't actually even get that far because I bailed scared. at the dissection scene when I first Very saw it. Right before then. Yes. I yeah. Ba- yeah. I made it like pretty far into the movie and then bailed. Yeah. It's really scary. But I think that's when it's actually the most effective. And I feel like that's not the part of the movie that I think is the one people talk about. They're all like, oh, you know, they blow up New York. They blow up L.A., Will Smith. But I think that part is the part where I'm like locked in. And it, that's the part when like that I'd like rewatch. If there was a scene in this movie, I'd re- that's it. Mm-hmm. I'd rewatch that scene. Mm-hmm. It's really effective. Yeah, it's great. Well, isn't that, I mean, you mentioned what Spielberg had said to Roland Emmerich about it changing blockbusters. I, what I had remembered being the reason was because one of the, like one of the reasons he thought it changed blockbusters was because he thought it was like a really good blending of genres, mm. which had not been happening. Yeah, it kind of before. had everything. It had mm-hmm. every genre in it. Yes. In yeah, Almost. exactly. Yeah. Which I think then becomes a formula 
uh, which is not often successful, yeah. <laughs> trying to jam in every yeah. genre ev- and and get an Emmy dem every quadrant and every demographic uh, in your audience and doing so. Um, but this movie does horror really, really well. Yeah. You do wonder what would happen if you were a horror director. <laughs> Let's use this as an opportunity to wrap up here with uh, just kind of comparing this movie to other disaster movies and sort of... W- Let's just throw it out there as like maybe we each make a recommendation of a, like a, right, a recommendation of a disaster movie. Is okay. that the way you want to think of it? All right. The first movie, uh, disaster movie that I would recommend is Knowing, which is a 2009 Alex Proyas uh, joint. It's a list of dates. Every major global disaster for the last 50 years in perfect sequence. The next number on the chain predicts that tomorrow, 81 people are going to die in some kind of tragedy. Get off the train. Why? What's wrong? Just take the baby and get off the train. Estimates put the presumed dead at 81. The prediction came true. It's not coincidence. Don't let them watch the news. Why won't you tell me what's going on? This movie, without spoiling it, is basically a retelling of the story of Genesis. (laughs) So have at that and enjoy uh, watching knowing, knowing that it is in a way a retelling of the first book of the Holy Bible. And I think you might get more out of it in that regard. It's fun. I dug it. I really dug it. I think it's a a kind of unfairly maligned movie. Um and uh you know, and Nick Cage is not being an interesting character. None of the acting is interesting or compelling in any way. It's pretty boring, but it's just such a high concept movie and when you get to the end and you're just like, "Huh, that's where he was going this whole time." I don't know. I find it like I just I I want to reward the movie for going in a direction I don't think anyone could have ever seen coming and and, and sort of leaning that hard into it. So that's my recommendation. First recommendation, knowing. My, listen, one of my recommendations, I'm not going to say anything about because uh, we've already talked about it for a really long time and it is Titanic. Titanic, I think, is the best disaster movie. (laughs) Um, And romance and spectacle. I love it. But the other one also involves a involves a boat. So apparently like my boat, favorite yeah. flavor of a disaster movie is boat movie. Um, but Perfect Storm was my other pick. In the fall of 1991, the Andrea Gale left Gloucester, Massachusetts and headed for the fishing grounds of the North Atlantic. Two weeks later, an event took place that had never occurred in recorded history. Mayday, mayday, mayday! Hold tight! Oh my God. When a, spe- when a disaster movie involves too many cities getting blown to smithereens, uh, I my mind tends yeah. to wander. I need the uh, I need the stakes to be a little smaller and a little more personal. And um, you know, in terms of a good collection of movie stars, Perfect Storm 
has that for sure. Um, early Wahlberg. I love it. Or I guess maybe middle Wahlberg. I'm not sure uh, where you'd put it, but he's great. I love a lot of Boston accents. I love a lot of Harbor talk. I'm into <laughs> it. Yeah, it's it's really enjoyable. Um, the action pieces are really fun. I love all the conflicts between the, the fishermen. All right. I'm going to make a second wreck in a way very different, although also about the destruction of the earth. Um, from the first one, all all these disaster movies about in a certain way the destruction of something. But I like the planet size destruction. Okay, you're going big. I'm going big, and um, I'm going to recommend uh, Melancholia, Lars von Trier. Now, this look that's a crazy and and also amazing recommendation. I love it. So I had I was really not thinking about that as a disaster movie. It's totally a disaster movie because right. the the planet is coming to an end, and it stars uh, Kirsten Dunst. And Charlotte Gainsbourg. Life is only on Earth. And not for long. I don't think you know that at all. Sometimes I hate you so much. I'm afraid that the planet will hit off anyway. It's a movie about depression set against the backdrop of the world we like at very, some point in the course of the film the we learn the world is going to end it is just inevitable like there's a planet-sized object hurtling towards earth and there's nothing we could do about it and um people are all trying to cope with that but kirsten Dunst has already been coping with de- profound depression and there are a couple sequences in the movie that um are quite incredible like uh von trier was kind of at this time playing around with like super slow-mo, but he uses it to a really great effect here. So there's like a sequence where Kirsten Dunst is just, she's sort of trying to walk through like, I don't know, a field and she's being restrained by vines and she can barely move and it's all done in slow motion. So she probably is moving at a normal speed, but she's just like ripping these vines out of the ground as she's trying to walk. And since it's so slow and she's not really going anywhere, you you get the, it's like a, a fantastic visual depiction of depression, of mm-hmm. just like that feeling of being weighed down by your emotional state, being unable to will yourself to to do anything, to like find the motivation to to move or to whatever. Um, but anyway, yeah. So melancholia, um, that would be my other wreck. All right, we done. I think so. All right. So we're going to wrap up uh, Independence Day. Let us know if you have thoughts about Independence Day. Nobody, when I say that, nobody, literally nobody has thoughts that they want to share with us. That's fine. But um, (laughs) if you want to reach out to us on Twitter, we are at CowsPod. And we also have a website, CowsPod.wordpress.com. Okay. Thanks, everyone, for listening. The next episode is a doubleheader just in time for Halloween. Spooky season. Spooky season. It is Scream 
and The Craft. So we're going to look at two movies starring Nev Campbell and Skeet Ulrich uh, that came out the exact same year. Until then, enjoy um, your fall, and we'll be back soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you.